Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll begin from verse 1. And we read that when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied himself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shirjashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Remaliah, Aram Ephraim, and Remaliah's sons, have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us divide Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then as Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will break the king of Assyria. We thank God for his word given to us today. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, once more we come and we ask that in your goodness and your mercy that you will give us understanding of your word. That this word written to people so many centuries, millennium ago, that you'll enable this word by your grace to come alive and to speak into each of our hearts. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're now right into Advent, that period leading up to the nativity, to the birth of Jesus Christ. So let me just begin by sharing one bit of topical nativity news. This apparently is going to be the top insert in Christmas crackers this year. Why was Theresa May sacked 
as the nativity manager because she couldn't run a stable government. Boom, boom. Yeah, poor Teresa. The na- Thank you. The nativity story, the Christmas story, is a wonderful story. There are, though, at times, a number of misunderstandings floating around regarding the nativity. For instance, a teacher set her primary school class, many of you will have experience of this, the task of drawing the nativity scene. One little girl there was by far and away the best potential artist in the class. So she watched this little girl just drawing with with great concentration. And when the lesson finished, she went to see to have a look at what her star pupil had produced. And everything was there and in its place. All the different significant characters had been picked out. There was the baby Jesus in the manger. There was Mary and Joseph. There was the innkeeper. There were the animals in the stable. They were all there. There was, though, in the corner, a large, ominous-looking figure of a man who seemed to almost loom over the proceedings. The teacher couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure where this character fitted into the nativity story. So eventually, she had to ask the girl just who this was. Back came the reply, oh, that's round John Virgin. I know we're getting worse. But there are some misunderstandings I want to say regarding the nativity story that aren't funny. Like, for instance, the statistic that I I came across during the week, the fact that in 1961, a magazine polled eight different seminaries, different ministry training institutions. They polled them, and one of the questions they asked was, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? 56% of them said no. Now, I have to be honest and say, I don't think that if you'd polled eight different ministry training institutions across the UK, across the denominational spectrum in the UK. I don't think this figure would actually have been any lower. But you know, do you see what, what, what that's saying? That 56% of people who trained for ministry in the church in 1961 didn't believe what the Bible actually teaches. And they didn't see any importance, any real significance in the doctrine of the virgin birth. That's scary stuff. And for me, that maybe helps to explain why the church today in the Western world is in the place that it is. So what we're going to do now is look here at what one of the great Old Testament prophecies says about the virgin birth about its place in the Bible, its trustworthiness, and its significance. So we're going to begin by looking first at the time. The time, just what was going on among God's people when the virgin birth was prophesied here in Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Well, this, this prophecy is given after Israel had divided into two separate kingdoms, shortly after the reign of of Solomon, David's son. It separated into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, 
which consisted of ten of the tribes, and which in the Bible at different times goes by the name of, of Israel now, or Ephraim, or Jacob, with two tribes forming the southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but with these two tribes being labelled together as Judah. None of this, I want to say to you, took God by surprise. Because there was conflict between the tribes right from the very beginning. And the eventual division between them here was foreshadowed during Jacob's final prayer of blessing on his sons in Genesis 48 and 49. But not long before the events we read of in Isaiah 7, in fact it's really referred to in in verse 1, but not long before it, both the kings referred to here Rezin of Aram and Rekah, or Pekah, sorry, of the northern tribe of Israel, both of these kings had individually attacked Judah and had inflicted crushing defeats on them. They didn't manage to take Jerusalem, but they really crushed the nation. And you can read all about this in Second Chronicles chapter 28. But as you read it, what stands out for me is that verse 6 informs us that Judah lost 120,000 soldiers in one day's battle against these two kings. Now, to set that in some kind of context, on the worst day in World War I, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, there were 60,000 Allied casualties. So if you see, if you set these figures in the context of the Old Testament period, where there were much smaller populations, then either that 120,000 is the slip of a scribe's pen, he meant maybe to write 12,000 mistakenly added an extra zero, or this is perhaps a, a symbolic number, a number that's meant just to signify an awful lot, or alternatively, this is about a loss of life which proportionately no modern nation has ever come close to experiencing. So imagine imagine the impact then that the news would, would have on Judah, that these kings and their armies, which already individually had inflicted such catastrophic defeats upon them, that these kings and their army were getting ready to unite and fall upon them once again. Isaiah 7.2 says, Now the house of David, that is Judah, was told that Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, with that northern kingdom of Israel. So the the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now, the background to this, what's happening here, is that at this time, the mighty Assyrian Empire was the top dog in this region. And Assyria, they had plans to invade and make all these different nations part of their great empire. That's what they wanted to do. So you see, the kingdoms of Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel, they decided to form a coalition to come together to resist Assyria. And they'd invited Judah, who earlier they'd attacked, to join them. But Judah, you see, refused this offer, and that later proved 
to be a wise man. So because of this, the kings of Aram and Israel, who, as we said previously, defeated Judah, they plotted to take Judah, to conquer them, to take Jerusalem, to kill the king of Judah and his family, divide its wealth among them and place their own king, puppet king, on the throne. They wanted then to conquer Judah before Assyria even had a chance. And this, their aim, is what's referred to in Isaiah 7, 6. It says, let us invade Judah and tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. But that's the time then. That's what was, was going on among the people of God. Judah and the southern kingdom seemed to be surrounded by enemies, seemed to be facing absolute annihilation. And it's into this situation that the prophet Isaiah steps in to share the word of God. But let's move on now from looking at the time to look at the test. At the test. And all this revolves around the interaction that, that we find here between Ahaz, king of Judah, Isaiah the prophet, and of course, ultimately, the sovereign Lord, our God. But before we identify this test, let me just first just clarify one or two, I believe, important points. First of all, that this Ahaz was one of the worst kings in the entire history of God's people. 2 Kings 16 from verse 2 on gives us an account of his life. And it tells us that though he was of the line of David, yet he did not do right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That is the already degenerate northern kingdom. And even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifice and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. And it's interesting, I think, that, to notice that when Isaiah go to, goes to meet Ahaz, he finds him, we're told, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the way to the washerman's field. So given the, the circumstances, I don't think it's, it's reading too much into things there, to conclude that, that what Ahaz was actually doing was estimating just what water supply they would have to attempt to sustain them through what seemed the inevitable coming siege. But then Isaiah comes to him in the midst of all his plans and thinking, bringing to him the word of the Lord, saying to Ahaz exactly what God has commanded him to say, do not lose heart. Because of those two smouldering stubs of firewood. That is Aram and Israel. And then verse 7. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. And then there falls a wee bit of interaction with him and with them. With this section finishing. With these final challenging words. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. An ominous warning from the Lord. And Ahab's response to this, as you look at it, is, is apparently a pious one. 
For when the Lord follows up this statement with an invitation to Ahaz to ask for a sign from him as a guarantee that his God will do as he promised, well, just listen to Ahaz's reply. Doesn't it sound so spiritual? He says, verse 11, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that's actually a direct quote from elsewhere in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 16. But, but don't we also hear in this? Echoes of Jesus, of his reply to Satan when he tried to tempt him in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. Well, you know, that's the way it seems. And there can be little doubt that that was Ahaz's intention to make this seem like this. But you see, there is a vital difference here. There's a vital difference. Because it's not putting God to the test to ask God for a sign if God himself invites you to do that. There is the world of difference between asking for a sign on our own initiative or being tempted to ask God for a sign by the evil one and being invited by God to ask for a sign. So you see, what might seem at first glance here to be a demonstration of faith by Ahaz is in fact a denial of faith. And in reality, what, what he has actually did, following on, was instead of, of trusting in God to deliver him from the, the threat from these two nearby kings, what he actually did was he appealed to Assyria for help and support. And this then set in motion a series of events that began with Judah becoming a servant, a subject nation of Assyria's, and they ended 150 years or so later when the Assyrian Empire fell, with Judah and Jerusalem, part of that empire, also falling into the hands of its conquerors, the great empire of Babylon, with many of its people then being taken into exile. We've got the story of of Daniel, etc. But what's surely, I think, most significant here is that God did exactly what he said he would. For within a short period of time, both kings, fear of whom drove Ahaz into an unholy alliance with Assyria, both of them were dead. And both of their nations were overrun by Assyria. With the inhabitants of Israel's northern kingdom then being taken into exile in Assyria, and when the remnant made their way back, in dribs and drabs following this exile, well, they actually make their appearance in the New Testament as the Samaritans. That's who the Samaritans are. A people despised by the Jews, no longer seen as two true Jews because of the way they'd intermarried and intermingled with other nations and peoples. And so today it's reckoned that there are less than a thousand Samaritans left worldwide. That's the test, though. A test where Ahaz was challenged to put his trust in God. Rather than his own cunning and his own efforts, or in this world with its trappings of power and its promise of here and now security. Tragically, Ahaz failed this test. And later, he and God's people paid the price. 
We're going to finish now by looking at the truth. At the truth that is the centerpiece of this passage. And it's, it's found in the sign given here by God in the face of Ahaz's unbelief. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the lands of the kings you dread will be brought to waste. Now, although this is not actually explicitly stated either in Isaiah or elsewhere in the Bible, yet when we look at later events, we, we believe that in some sense this prophecy was fulfilled to some degree within the time frame of Isaiah. And certainly we do know, as we've touched on once or twice earlier, that the end result of this prophecy did come to pass during the time of Isaiah, what he promised happened for these two enemy kings did die and their lands were put to waste. But you see, standing here where we are in history, we also know that this prophecy was fulfilled in a much more significant, much more large scale, world transforming way in Jesus Christ. For he is the one born of a virgin. The Son of God become man, who is now Emmanuel, God with us. You know, as we've looked here at the story of Ahaz, have, have you ever wondered at any point why God reached out to him as he did? Why God reached out to this man, a man who had sinned and who turned his back on God in the most despicable and defiant way, and, and someone who'd led many of his people by his example to do the same. Have you wondered? Do you wonder? Why? Why did God bother with this man? Well, I ask you to consider this. Ahaz was a direct descendant of David. And in Matthew chapter 1, he finds his place, this Ahaz, in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, at the human level, was the direct descendant of David and of Ahaz. Why did God choose to include such a man within the lineage of Jesus? Maybe in order to demonstrate, as this surely does, that there is no man so fallen, no man so sinful as to be out with the reach of of God's love. That there's no one, no person who the sovereign Lord cannot take into his purposes and use. But so you see, at a practical and more particularly a physical level, God could not allow Ahaz, and more particularly his sons, he couldn't allow them to be killed, which as we've seen was the intention of these two enemy kings. God could not allow Jesus' direct line of descent through Ahaz to David to be broken. Now, let's be honest, there are an infinite number of ways that a sovereign God could have achieved what, what he wanted here. Infinite. But here, in his grace, and because of his mercy, 
God initially sought to achieve this in such a way as to give Ahaz and the people of Judah a way back into the center of his will, an opportunity to get back on track with him. However, as we've seen, Ahaz failed to take this opportunity. Instead of demonstrating faith, he acted in a way that was a denial of faith. He failed the test given to him by God. And so he sealed his own fate and also that of his people. But why, though, the virgin birth? Why did God give this sign here? Knowing that ultimately and gloriously it would be fulfilled in that birth of Jesus that we celebrate every Christmas. Why? Well, I believe because if Jesus were to be both God and man, which he had to be to win our salvation. He had to be a man so that he could stand in our place. He had to be God so that he could offer up the perfect sinless life that alone could pay the price of our sin. Jesus had to be both. Then so his origin then had to be rooted back in God and man. Plus, The fact of the virgin birth establishes right from the very beginning, indeed before the beginning, in human terms, it establishes that our salvation is rooted in God's initiative. That it began with God, that it was God in his grace who took that first step that made salvation possible. Because without the virgin birth, Without a divine and sinless Christ, there can be no salvation. Underlining, as was underlined again and again, and all Christ did, moving on from the virgin birth, that our salvation, from its beginning to its end, is all of God, all of grace, all of his mercy. All of our efforts, our works, play no part in salvation. It's all a gift of God that we receive by faith. Of course, once we've received that salvation, we then want, because of our love for God, we want inspired by his love and we're enabled by his power from that point to live a transformed life. But our efforts, our works, don't win us salvation. They are an outworking of our salvation. Salvation, from beginning to end, is a gift of God that we receive by faith. You see, that's the truth that the virgin birth introduces. That's the truth that stands at the heart of Christmas, that God has made it possible for us to know him. He's made it possible for us to be set free from sin and from guilt by the gift of Jesus Christ. God became man in Christ. God and man in Christ. The sinless Son of God. Born in that stable in Bethlehem. Crucified on that cross at Calvary. Then risen from the dead, victorious over sin and death and all the powers of evil. This is God's gift 
to mankind. This is God's gift to you. And I would urge you, don't turn your back on that gift as he has did here. Rather, by faith, take hold of all that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to come again and praise you for your gift to us in Jesus. That like Ahaz, we are undeserving, we are unworthy. And yet you took the initiative, you stepped in. And in Jesus, you have won salvation for us all. Father, we bless you, we praise you, we worship you and adore you. And we ask that you'll help us to in turn, because of your love and your power, to live lives that are worthy tribute to Jesus. We pray this now in his name. Amen.